This is Power Players with Dan Clark. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high-performance business coach, where each week I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power to become everything you were born to be. Thanks for spending some time with me today. In this episode, John Absey, the original NBA basketball Utah Jazz Bear and extraordinary philanthropist, shares his life and fascinating journey of becoming a sports team mascot that began as a farm boy in North Dakota, landing his first mascot job for only $25 for Morehouse State College, which eventually led to an audition to be the Utah Jazz mascot in the early 1990s. Absey created the Jazz Bear character and costume and worked more than 800 home games over 24 seasons, being named Professional Mascot of the Year five times across across all professional sports and being inducted in the Professional Mascot Hall of Fame, giving us the inside glimpse into the insane creativity and intense courage required to be a world-class mascot and crazy entertainer. Most significantly, John proves why being a mascot has nothing to do with the suit. Showcased by his countless hours of community and public service and his incredible respect and standing as an important citizen of Utah, who has won eight mascot leadership awards. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark. Today, you finally get to ask the question, even though I'm asking the questions in the studio, Ask the question, who is the real human being behind the mascot costume? Who is the individual when you go to a sporting event and you see this mascot perform, engage the audience, cheer on that home crowd to give us the home, home field or home court advantage? Who is this human being who comes up with extraordinary ideas, creative ways to, to get the audience riled up and, and entertained, especially when there's timeouts, especially when there's nothing really worth watching on the field, which is the case of all the teams who have losing records. Living here in Utah, I am so proud to have on my podcast a gentleman by the name of John Absey. And he is the original jazz bear. He created the idea. He created the costume. He created his antics that allowed him to be named and honored as the NBA mascot of the year five times and the number one voted most popular, most amazing, most significant mascot across all professional sports and college sports nationwide two different times. He's in the Mascot Hall of Fame, as you heard in my pre-recorded interview. But more importantly... He's a husband, he's a father, he's a philanthropist. He is so kind. He is such a stud in every way. You've inspired me since I met you at, um, at Asian Star, out of uniform, out of costume for the first time, and our dear friend Thurl Bailey introduced us, and you were just going in for your first of like 462 and a half surgeries, if you remember that. It was my wife's uh, 40th birthday party. Thurl was there to sing to her. We had kind of a star-studded dinner there at our favorite restaurant here in Utah. 
and you so graciously just paused for a moment, and then I got to ask Thurl who you really were. And when you have the jazz players, when you have um, the, 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 the Gail and Larry Miller family who absolutely just think the world of you, when you have the, the, the fan base, the thousands and thousands of, 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 of ticket holders and season ticket holders who have been entertained and inspired by you, it's an honor for me to unveil the mask, the, 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 the masked singer, the, the, the gentleman, the true gentleman and kind, caring human being that you are underneath this costume we affectionately call our jazz bear. Welcome to the show. Wow. Okay. Thank you, everybody. That was great. Time to check out. I'm not topping that. <laughs> no, I know his wife and what he'll do now that we know John. He'll, he'll have this played to his wife every night just like we did with... <laughs> With with Andy Chad, he needs all the help he can get. John doesn't need any help, and what a what a good way to turn off the night the, the lights at night and go to sleep. <laughs> wow, I'm just saying seriously, Dan. Uh, thank you for that intro. That was that was super very very super kind of you. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you mean so I, much. I do want to clarify one thing though. Is like, <clears throat> you know, looking back at everything that I did and how I started, um, I was just fortunate to have beginning of it all the like perfect storm like perfect management and I go right to Grant Harrison who was our vice president then and um, if it wasn't for his trust in just letting me be the bear like he said uh, he just said listen I'm gonna give you enough rope to hang yourself just don't hang yourself yeah. you know and he always you know he just and he was the guy that went to battle for me you know because there was a number of times where I went a little outside the box, and he went to battle, and, and he knew that, you know, in order for the character to keep creating and keep growing, you needed to push those bounds. And, uh, no, it, 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 it was really a, 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 a group effort to, to get the character going. Like, I was really fortunate to have, uh, you know, something that we called the Bear Crew. Mm -hmm. And I had, I have three guys that started when I started, and they all quit when, when, uh, when I left. Um, and, uh, it, it was just, you know, it was, it was that core group of guys that I knew had, cause like when I left, I had nine guys wow. that worked with me on game nights and, um, just knowing that they, I had my trust in them and I, and I trusted them to save my life <laughs> when, and always tell me eh, that, that might not work. You, you're probably going to die if you do that. So. But I, I trusted those guys, and they were there every game, and they uh, they put a lot of effort and energy into uh, making the bear what he was. That's so cool. Metaphor for life, you know. Behind every successful husband is an astonished mother-in-law. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> behind every successful superstar is someone on a team that are behind the scenes that make us look great. So let's yeah. just go all the way back. Let's pull the curtain, John. Where did you grow up? And were you always uh, an extraordinary natural gymnast? Did you always have a natural sense of balance and natural body strength, or did you develop that? Take us from the beginning. You know, <clears throat> wow. So, honestly, I, I was never a gymnast. I was a farm boy up in a little town up in East Grand Forks, Minnesota. Um, uh, literally just growing up with older brothers and sisters and, and just how much they beat me up helped. <laughs> 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 they, they, they taught me to be a little tough, but... 
it was like climbing trees, climbing the warehouse, you know, getting on top of the barn, jumping on a tractor and tearing off in the field. And I mean, it was just kind of like my training ground. And then I was really fortunate to go to a, it was a Sacred Heart High School and they- In Grand Forks? In East Grand Forks, East yeah. Grand Forks, and yeah. they were patient enough with me <laughs> to put up with the stupid stuff I would do. I, I was not a mean kid. I was just always like, I remember one time in Spanish class, the teacher didn't show up on time, so I ended up out on the third floor ledge, just chilling out, you know, I, because in my head I was like, meh, I'm bored. I, I was just so ADHD, and and I just remember the principal leaning out the window, her name was Sister Basil, I love her, and she just goes, hey, uh, John, can you come in here, please? <laughs> and and I just, you know, got up, walked over, and she grabbed me by the, by, by the ear and hauled me all the way down to the office, and I remember another time running up the wall and putting two big holes in the wall, and but they were really patient with me, and, and uh, uh, they let me learn all my skills for, for so the, what I was doing. So the three years you were a junior in high school almost killed the whole faculty? It was actually three years as a sophomore, <laughs> two years as a junior. <laughs> See, I knew we had something in common as soon as we kept talking long enough. So, so take us from high school, then what happened? So then after high school, I uh, joined the military. Which service? Actually, I take that back. After high school, I, I went to Minneapolis. Two weeks after I graduated, I just wanted to get off the farm and kind of see what the big city is was like. And I moved out there with one of my best friends, his name was Jim Johnston. And we went out and lived with his dad for a while and um, was there for a number of years. And then I came back to go to school in Moorhead, Minnesota, at the Moorhead State. Yeah. And then I joined the military to help pay for college. Which service? Uh, Army. Yeah. Uh, I was a forward observer. And uh, I volunteered, so I was done with military, still going to school. Um, I got a call from, or yeah, from uh, our boss over. So, geez, I'm all over the place, no, Dan. No, you're not. No, you're not. There's you're just awesome. so many little, so little caveats. So, how old were you when you joined the military? Then, if you, um... so I was how old? Yeah, I was 22. Okay, and then uh, got out of the military. Was going through school. Uh, well, not out of the military, but out of basic yeah. training and all that stuff. And then I uh, was going through school, and I was coaching over at a gym. It was called American Gold Gymnastics. And that's basically where I started kind of teaching myself gymnastics because I wasn't a Did gymnast. Did someone teach you so you could be a teacher? You just showed up and figured it out. No, this is kind of funny because I lied on the application and said I was a gymnast at Sacred Heart, but I never was. And then it wasn't for a number of years later that uh, the, the boss, or uh, Marcy, came in, and she's like, um... Just so you know, I, I found out that Sacred <laughs> Heart doesn't have a gymnastics team. <laughs> so what I would do is I would go in and I would just watch what other coaches were doing. And it, it was really weird that if I could watch, like his name was Mark Strage, and he would teach me after hours and stuff, and I, it, I would watch him do his backflips. And I'd say, okay, do it again. And if I could see it and visualize it, I could do it, if that makes any sense. Yes, absolutely. So there were a number of times where like he would show me you know, like how to throw a full off a tramp. And I said, okay, do it again. And I could just visualize it. And then I was just, I don't know why, but I was just able to, to do the trick. And um, so thankfully for American Gold Gymnastics, they, they're the ones who kind of lent their facility for me to learn and train. And then the Fargo Fever, which was a CBA team back in the day before the D-League and stuff, they came on board and they, or they came over and asked if there was anybody there that would want to be a mascot. And they immediately all pointed at me and, um, I was like, yeah, that'd be great because I was a poor college kid making 25 bucks a game. Why not? <laughs> so 
I would, uh, I started sledding down the stairs back then and bungee jumping out of the ceiling and um, about halfway through the season. In the CBA league. Yep. And then they, they called me in and <laughs> they fired me because they thought I was going to kill somebody. They were like, John, appreciate everything you did, but you're going to kill yourself or a fan. And they said like, so, you know, so I just, I was like, okay, that was fun. You know, it was, it wasn't life changing for me. It was just something fun to do. So then um, a team up in Winnipeg happened to be down scouting. And you remember Tom Nasowski? Oh, yeah, big time, yeah. The judge, yeah. He was the commissioner up there for the NBL back in the day. And uh, he, uh, there was a Winnipeg Thunder. So then um, those guys had brought me up to Winnipeg to mascot for the summer. But unlike Fargo, they had no rules. (laughs) So, and I almost died four times. And they were... Just crazy moments, and honestly, Dan, that's when I realized I got a great guardian angel, that somebody is literally looking out for me because there was, there was a number of times. Give us the examples. But wait, let's go back to sledding down the stairs. Visualize this, my friends. A basketball arena, cement stairs, railings going down the side, people a knee away from being taken out by a sledding mascot in a, in a costume, looking out the looking out the the, the the window, whatever it looks like. I've never had the helmet on the head, and somehow navigating straight down the steps, going about how fast? Thirty miles an hour, twenty miles an hour, fifty miles an hour. I don't know. That'd have been fun to radar. Oh that right my there. gosh! You would come whipping down there, and uh, how did you come up with that idea? Well, I actually got smart when I got to the to the jazz as I started putting two sleds together and put a wood board in the middle of them so that it was more solid. But uh, back when I started in Fargo, you remember those old roll-up sleds? Oh, yeah. I used to use one of those. And it was just, it was so hard on my body <laughs> because you would feel every stair as that thing went down. Um, but, uh, yeah, so um, w- when I hit Winnipeg, I remember I used to uh, rappel in, and I would straddle two beams and when Thunderstruck would start, I would jump in the air, put my feet together, and, you know, just zip in really quick on a rope. And I got up there late. Usually when I'd get up there, I had time to take my head off, look, hook myself in, check my equipment. And on this night, for some reason, I, I just didn't get up there in time. And I did it blind. Like, I just left my head on. And it just felt funny, thank heavens. And I just sat there, and I was like, God, that just doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel right. And I remember there was this voice in my head that literally was just screaming, don't go, don't go. And I remember the, the audio kicked in, thunderstruck, and I, I literally got on my toes, and I didn't go. I took my head off, and I looked, and I hooked into a cargo strap, which holds about 15 pounds. Oh it was just a rock climbing God. thing. And I l- was so thankful that I didn't How go. How many feet up were you? About 120. It was in the oh, Winnipeg Jets arena. Oh, my God. So, and then there was another time where... Uh, I was zip lining in, and I was coming out of a, a spotlight stand about 80 feet in the air, and I had a dancer from the Winnipeg Thunder that literally not strapped in or anything was just holding on to me, and I'm holding on to her, and I'm zipping in with one hand wrapped in a rope, and a, it was called a lanyard that would just slide on the cable, right? So... <laughs> I wrap my hand in. We do the practice, but I just did it off a ladder that was, I bet you, probably 14 feet. She held on to me, and we zipped in, and we hit the floor, and 
I never thought, because like, so when you take a rope and you put both ends on the cable, you put your hand in it and you twist it so that it's, it twists down on your wrist, okay? Well, that 12-foot or 14-foot ladder didn't allow enough time for me to understand that I was going to unwind. So when we came out that night, we did it. And as we're zipping in, first time doing a full go, it started to unravel. And when it was unraveling, it, it was the only thing holding us. And I remember screaming like the whole, like halfway down when I realized we had s- spun and that the only thing keeping my hand in that loop with her on my side was me just squeezing those two ropes together. And I remember screaming, and my only thought was, I'm not letting her die. I don't care what happens to me. Just I'm not letting her die because of the stupid decision that we decided because we're doing Phantom of the Opera. And as we're coming in, I remember just like everything in me to hold us, and we hit the floor. She ran over to join the group to dance, and I just collapsed on the floor. And I remember just laying there, and I literally couldn't move because it like took everything out of me to just hold that rope. So, but yeah, those are, those are two real bad moments, but. So then you, so talk to us about your exercise program. You're still, at your age, you're still so fit. You're so strong. I love you, Dan. Thank you. No, but you know, when we have, when we have arguments <laughs> with our spouses or significant others, we call it the rebound rate. You know, if you ever go through counseling, if anybody ever does that, it's always about the rebound rate. How long does it take you to come back and start talking instead of holding a grudge? How long does it take us to respond once we go into the gym and just push ourselves and tear down our muscles and, and work on our cardio? So when you have X number of games in a week as a professional mascot, where do you have time to strengthen your muscles, not just maintain, but to strengthen and continuously keep your flexibility where it needs to be to, for you to be that mascot of the year? at the top of your game, game in and game out, year in and year out. Unbelievable. Um, honestly, is uh, the biggest part, and I think the thing that kept me out of so many injuries was my flexibility, and that I did almost every day. And, and I, and I kind of liked when, I didn't like it, but when I would get a surgery because I hurt myself, they'd always say, like, oh, it's going to be hard to come back, or oh, you won't come back from this 100%. And I'd be like, okay, now it's a challenge. <clears throat> like when I did my knee, they took my hamstring and instead of a cadaver tendon and stuff. And I remember them telling me that you won't be able to do the splits on that leg anymore. And I was like, all right, <laughs> game on, you know? Yeah, you and it, it. So I worked so hard and, and I literally got my splits back and I still kind of think probably even better than before. Okay. So for the benefit of our, uh, of our, our tribe, what were some of your most f- famous Obviously, all of them were crazy dangerous. What were some of your most famous antics that you are still known for that no other mascot does? You know, I mean, I could plant seeds, but I, I know you could just start <laughs> rattling them off. Well, you know, when I started, uh, I wanted to find my own path. And, like, there, there's three types of mascots. There's the big, heavy, funny mascots like the Philly Fanatic. Mm-hmm. And then you have your... Uh, really athletic mascots like uh, uh, Thunder from Golden State back when he was dunking and stuff. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's really any more. Oh, uh, Lucky from Boston. You know, they're those guys that are just strictly athletic and they work the crowd a little bit. Then you have like the Phoenix Gorilla and um, uh, some of the other mascots in the league like Rocky and stuff and, and 
Crunch and, and uh, Sacramento and, and Portland and Indy, but they're kind of that mix where you're funny and you're athletic, you know? So that's where I, I wanted to be. But then I realized even in that group, that's a big group. Like I just named off a bunch. <clears throat> and I just wanted to make sure that I was doing my own my own path to success here and, and hopefully make it successful. So I, I did stunts, and I was like one of the first mascots to start doing stunts. And I remember Luke Larson, my assistant, I love him. Uh, we would always – so I started a mascot conference um, you know, uh, three years into what when I had started mascotting. Um, was that 1993? <coughs> I started in 93, so 96 I started the conference. 93, and your first – oh, you started mascotting – in 93, yep. that's not when you came to the Jazz. That was way before that, when you did everything else. Nope, came to the Jazz at 93. Okay, so that's when you became the mascot. Right. Okay. So then, and then or not the, but yeah, one of the mascots. No. But, so then uh, I started a mascot conference because in my head I was like, why is everybody so competitive? Because nobody would talk about ideas or share ideas. And uh, what I realized is just because I'm doing something in Utah – but if the gorilla copies it, nobody's going to know. But in, to me, I was like, if we can make this industry stronger and better, it'll help all of us. So I started this conference, and five guys showed up the first year. And then as time went on, it turned into the conference that you had to go. And then all the other leagues kind of copied it. And um, when I was doing, like, when I would submit my stuff, Luke would always say, he's like, why do you keep, you know, showing them the stuff you're doing? I said, and, then, and I know this pushed me, and, I, and I'm glad I did it because I know it worked, is I said, you know, if I don't share it and, and nobody's trying to copy it, one, I don't know if it's good enough to, that I'm really doing this. And then two, once somebody does it, I, I want to be able to do something else. And I said, I don't want to get into a rut, you know. So I remember that happened with uh, the, the ladder is I went out, and I was one of the first guys to bring the ladder on the court and get up on top of signs, and then guys started doing how, it. How tall was the ladder? We're not talking just a little uh, six-footer. Come on, baby. No, it actually, back then, it, you know, when I first started going out, it was literally only 12 feet. And then guys started going out, and they were on the ladder. Then I was like, okay, i got to get a bigger ladder. That's when we pulled out the 25-footer. And uh, Little Giant, they're the ones, they were just, Anytime I had an idea, they would just build me a ladder. <laughs> I loved it because they're the ones who built me the big sled from the upper bowl. Um, so then I got a big ladder. Then Rocky got a big ladder. Then I was like, okay, I got to top this now. So then the next year, I was like, okay, I'm going to do a handstand. And then I remember um, his name was On Mark. the top of the ladder. On the top. And then Mark, uh, I don't remember his last name, Mark, uh, he uh, started doing handstands. Then it was like, okay, I'm going to do a one-armed handstand. So then the one-armed handstand happened. And nobody copied it. So then I was like, okay, I'm safe there. <laughs> Nobody's going to – because I wouldn't – honestly, I thought somebody was going to. So then I started – before I got let go, I was working on doing a flag where you would hold yourself out sideways on a bar. And oh. I was going to do it up top. And then my guys below would spin it so that I would spin around the top of the ladder. <laughs> but thankfully, <laughs> I never had to do it. Uh, crazy. So, so <clears throat> did you conceive the idea of a bear? Or how did that idea come to fruition? Well, um, when I got out here, which thankfully I actually got out here, because if, if you go back before that, I, when, I, when I did tryouts out here, um, they had a three-team tryout with Sacramento, Seattle, and Utah. And I got an offer from all three teams, but I didn't call anybody back because I was too scared. I, I literally chickened out. And that's, that's something 
it, for everybody out there, <laughs> never doubt. Just take that step and give it a shot. So I almost missed out on being out here. Grant Harrison called me uh, a couple weeks after, and he's like, did you take a job with the other teams? I was like, no. And he goes, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. He goes, why don't you come out here? And he <laughs> talked to me like I was 10. He's like, come out here. Just take, <laughs> give us a chance. I was like, okay. So um, when we got out here, I mean, uh, um, what was the question? <laughs> no, how did who who came up with the idea of the bear and Guinness so that's in the what beginning? The no, that's, that's can you tell that I'm still a little no, bit I love it, man, because you just embellished the question. I love it a little bit more ADHD than I. No, am. no, no. So when I got out here, they they had the Black Panther was one of them, the Jasmanian Devil. Remember the Tasmanian oh, Devil, oh, yeah. something like that. And then this one character, which was funny, they just called it a blob, and it was just this big blob character but then the other one was a, a brown bear because it's native to the mountains and that's where we went because we wanted the black panther was actually kind of almost on top of the list but we wanted to kind of step away from the old new orleans uh jazz feel and we wanted our own identity very very cool so you come to the jazz in 93 uh what else besides your ladder and tell us about coming from the upper bowl Describe that visually. Paint the word picture for everybody. So I remember, you know, because I sled, um, you know, from the lower bowl at the top all the way down. And Which I is about how many, how many, how many rows? That's got to be 40, 28. 28 rows in the lower bowl. Yep. And that wasn't enough for the jazz bear. Well, it, you know, it, it's like, I don't know. You know, I never wanted, that's what I loved about my job is I loved always pushing myself, you know, because I felt like if, the day that I stop pushing myself and I'm not excited to try and do something new is the day that I got to hang it up, you know? And I, I was just always so excited. It was like, seriously, Dan, it was like, <laughs> it was like a playland, you know? It was like, okay, what could I do that would be fun that, you know, I want to do? And I was like, well, let's sled from the upper bowl. So called Little Giant, they built me this enormous ramp from the upper bowl all the way down to the floor. And we did it for... Uh, called uh, the draft and I remember going up there and looking down and I looked over at Luke and I remember <laughs> I was just like Luke I think this might be a real bad idea and he was just like man I'm glad you're doing it so we jumped on and and man that was it was such a fast fun ride though it was so cool and then we slid literally all the way across the cement we had a mat there and I crashed into the mat because that's how fast you were going and I, I loved it so much, I looked over at Craig Bolajak, and I'm like, I'm doing it again. <laughs> so <laughs> ran back up the slide, and just, oh it, I, it was God. so fun. Uh, it was, it, that was a lot of fun. So, so tell, tell us about your, your philanthropic efforts. So living here in Utah, it seemed like any time there was a significant opportunity to touch kids' lives, to raise money for a noble charity, the jazz bear would show up. And we always said the jazz bear's here. The jazz bear would show up. But I want everybody to know, no, John Absey showed up, who happened to be the jazz bear. Big difference. Tell us about where you grew to love charity and service before self. Did you learn that from your parents? Did you learn that from your siblings beating the crap out of you going, <laughs> someday I'm going to never do this or talk to me? No, you know, um, honestly, is you know, I, I, I guess I was always raised, especially like coming from a farm. I don't know if it's just those type of values, but where you, you know, you always, if you can, you help others out. But when I got out here and started doing the job, I, I guess I felt more blessed that I had a job and a vehicle 
that could do so much. And I just, I just felt like I needed to give back. It was, it was that, you know, the, the fans were so accepting of the character and I appreciated that. The, the team was so accepting of the character and I appreciated that. Um, I, I just knew that I needed to give back, um, to just show my gratitude and, and also it, it really turned into, you know, like I said before, is I loved being able to, to play and have fun and push the envelope. But the charity side of things is what really motivated me, what started really uh, making the job worthwhile. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and it was, you know, people like you and, and Andy Chud was a huge part of that is, uh, you know, I, I just started kind of getting those calls. I never thought it would actually you know, people would want me to come out so much because I made such a mess all the time <laughs> when I'd show up. But uh, it actually turned with, out where... The silly string and... I confetti. Mean, confetti, oh yeah. But it actually turned out where, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, I was actually out you know, doing appearances a lot of times to supplement my income, you know. And uh, I turned all those down, and this is where the team supported me, is I said, I, I don't want to do, you know, if there's a conflict between a charity event or a sponsor event or a paid event i want to do the charity event so my my appearance load because i was doing about 300 appearances a year 325 mm. and they were 99 percent charity and if there was ever a conflict between a charity or a sponsor needed me or something like that i'd always default to the charity and and thankfully the team let me do that so teach us about the beginnings of the mascot bowl and what it really is you know, we've, we've had Andy Chud describe what the money is used for to, for the other part of the John Apsey charitable conglomerate. But talk to us about the origins of the mascot bowl. And do you actually have this fraternity? Or do you actually keep in touch with one another as mascots off-season? Or is it more just kind of a professional association? Kind of give us the inside scoop of the mascot bowl. You know, uh, all the mascots... Even though I've been gone for a while, I'm still in touch with everybody. Matter of fact, on the way here, I was talking, I can say his name, Bob Wolf. He was the old Phoenix gorilla. And oh, wow. I was talking to him because uh, he and I are talking about maybe trying to do some stuff together. Okay. And then same with Rocky out in Denver. And mm -hmm. I mean, so I still stay in touch with all these guys. And, and that's what I love um, is that we're a really tight brotherhood, you know, because we've all had a deal and we all talk with, you know, the way our teams are either treating us or the way a fan is, this is happening or, you know, so we all stay in touch. Um, but mascot bowl started, uh, strictly because I always wanted to do something that was very family friendly and that any family could afford. And I just wanted to be able to entertain people, um, without having to spend as much as it was back then to go to a game. And well, actually now, but even back then. And I just thought it, it would just be kind of fun. Well, then that turned into, because as we were, when I, when I started with uh, the shop with, uh, with Bear, it used to be Bill Childs. It was Childs Christmas, if you remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. R.C. Williams. Yep. So then yeah. I would jump on board with them, and uh, that's where it all started. And then when Bill stepped away, then um, I tried to raise the money. And it, I was getting it through Carl Malone, John Stockton. All those guys literally would just write me checks, and they would cover it. That era changed, <laughs> and, it, and it was just different, you know. Um, pl players just, they, they didn't write me those checks like it was, and, then I, and it was hard to 
to get money, you know, because it was one, I never liked talking to people about who I was, you know that. And so it was tough. So I thought, well, let's take that idea of an entertainment event and let's use it to raise money to take kids shopping. Mm -hmm. And then that's where it, it was really nice um, that mascots uh, around the country would support me. You know, I, it, you know, and it's humbling. It really is to know that these guys will take time out of their careers, their days, their year to give it, to go out and sweat like crazy and get hurt, you know, for, for a charity that they don't even really do anything with. And it, so I love them for that. And they still come to this day. And that's where it all started is, is uh, uh, just an idea to raise money to be able to take kids shopping. Yeah. You know, the first time in my life that I ever got a chance to go into the locker room and watch these guys put on their suits. Describe to us how you actually can see through the head and in that process, keep your balance and have situation, situational awareness so you don't fall over. Or how do you climb a ladder? Teach us about how do you navigate yourself through this little teeny window? How big is the window? Do you see like 180 degrees? Teach us the inside look from the inside of a, of a head of a mascot. You know, it, it's so funny because just like there's three different types of mascots is there's a whole bunch of different types of vision when it comes to a head. A lot, some guys in the cheaper suits, they look through the neck. And uh, like, matter of fact, the Philly Fanatic is one. And it's not a cheap suit, but it's just, that's technically kind of where it goes because it limits your ability a lot. Then you got other guys that look through the mouth and uh, the Denver Broncos, he looks through his mouth. Um, but I was really, for, well, then there's other guys that they can look through their eyes, but they're screened almost like your microphone, you know, just those little holes. And then they have painted in eyes. The thing that I was fortunate about is my eyes were just like, and I got it from him was the Phoenix gorilla. And there they basically formed the mask to fit my face so that it fit perfect right around my eyes. So my vision was my eyes. I didn't have to see through a screen the only thing I had is I had a nose, which dropped my lower peripheral, which I remember when Greg Osterte came to the team, his son was running up to me, and I, I didn't see him. And I need him so hard. <laughs> and he went flying, and I look, and I see this kid sliding across the floor. And I was like, oh, he's going to start crying. And I'll be darn. He just got up, came running back over. And I was like, I looked at Greg, and I'm like, you got a tough kid, man. That kid took a knee. So I thought I broke a rib. So that's really about it, is, is I was really fortunate that I had uh, good enough vision that if I could do something out of the suit, I could do it in the suit. I mean, it was a little bit harder, but I could, I could figure it out. So you said something that's very intriguing, the, the difference between today's professional athletes and the days of old. <laughs> uh, what do you think that shift from <laughs> service before self, we appreciate the fans, we're here for you, versus it's all about me. I don't care about appearances and give me more money as I teach in my, in my world of culture creation and leadership and sales. If you come for money, you will leave for money. Yep. You know, think people think they have to give someone a bonus to increase performance. And yet your experience is no, when you have service before self, you elevate everyone around you. So from the inside, kind of give us an inside glimpse of when you think that shift occurred and why it occurred from from opportunity i'm so grateful to be a professional athlete i've dreamed my whole life to do this to entitlement 
Wow. So, and I, I do talk about this to some people, is, is back when I started and then all the way up through the 90s, you know, we were fortunate enough to have two finals and they were amazing. Um, but I remember back in the day that, you know, God bless their, so- bless their souls, and Steve and Minnie, they were this older couple that would always come down to the cage and they'd bring Luke and I drinks and cookies and it was awesome. They were just like the grandparents of the cage. And I remember them going out one night and they asked, because this is back when you could stand on the side of the court and the players would talk to you. And matter of fact, I remember one time seeing Adam Keefe up in the stands talking to people. It was such a different time. But they had asked uh, Greg Foster if he wanted to come over for dinner. And I'll be dang. He said yes. And he showed up. And, I mean, so that's the kind of players we had back then. They were, and that's the way the sports was back then as well. You were approachable. You weren't above anybody just because you got a bigger paycheck. You know what I mean? Because when you really think about it, these athletes are playing kids' games. They're playing a game that we've played when we were six. Rules don't change or anything. The only thing that's changed is you get a salary. And what I think happened is the, the sports teams started glorifying these guys so much and paying them such big amounts of money. And then what they did is they put a bigger wedge between the fans and the players. And I think that's so wrong. And I, and I, I would love to see it go back to where it was where a fan could get an autograph or a fan could talk to a player. Because I remember just before I left uh, when Gordon Hayward was there, and it was a – I hated it. I couldn't believe – actually allowed it but he said he didn't like the fans that close to the court so they moved everybody three rows back you couldn't come within three rows and I remember just always sitting there and that was like one of the moments where I was like I'm gonna show him and I kept bringing I would grab people and haul them out on the court (laughs) because it was like this is this is what makes fans fans is being able to interact coming on the court I'm not a fan of a team that I don't know anybody on it you know, I'm a fan of a team that the players appreciate me being there and spending that hard-earned money to come watch them play. Matter of fact, uh, this year I was talking to a season ticket holder who sits down front, and he made the comment. He's like, dude, they're raising our ticket prices. And he goes, and I've been to a, a number of games where the stars aren't playing. They're just resting them on the bench now. Do you remember John and Carl or any of those oh, guys? Oh, yeah, re- no. no. They played every minute. Yep. And now it's, I don't know, it's it's such a different culture. And – um, that's why I, I really started liking like college, you know, because it's they're out there playing for the love of the game, you know, and that's why I like a lot of these minor league, you know, sports teams and oh, yeah. like the Warriors here, the Utah Grizzlies, you know, those those are players that they want to elevate, but they still understand that you know it's those fans in the seats that are making us have the ability to uh, play and hopefully get to their goal, you know. So I remember um, I read a lot of speeches for celebrities, and I got a call from Danny Mantle, one of the four sons of the famous Mickey Mantle, wow. New York Yankee. So I got a chance to interview him and go to Dallas and meet his mother, who was still alive, and go go to the mausoleum and pay tribute to the great Mickey Mantle. And in those days, Mickey Mantle won the Triple Crown in 1956, and the Yankees wanted to trade him because he was getting paid too much money. He was one of the three highest-paid professional baseball players in the entire league. Duke Snyder, Willie Mays, and Mickey Mantle all made $150,000 a year, and they were the top-paid players. The Dick Butkus, the, the guys that 
you know, from Meyer that I grew up idolizing. They played for the love of the game and had an, a, a second career, had another job on the offseason so they could pay their bills. Yep. They played for the right reasons. You know what's so funny? I grew up on the high avenues in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carl Malone builds his house up there. And it's in my mother's neighborhood just down the street on the same street as my mom. And when they moved in, my sweet mother, now visualize her youngest of nine children raised by a single mom on a farm in southern Idaho. She's just a good old girl. I love it. She bakes a cake, goes and knocks on the door. Kay Malone answers the door, and my sweet mother says, Hi, I'm Ruby Clark, and we just live down the street, and I wanted to welcome you to the neighborhood. And to your point, Kay Malone invites my mother in, gives her a tour of her brand-new house, and takes her on a tour of the entire room that Carl built with plexiglass uh, cases of every single member of the Dream Team with autographed everything, shoes, jersey, shorts, my mom calls me when she gets home. I'm like, why didn't you call me? Why, why couldn't I be your bodyguard? Why didn't you take me? To your point, Carl and Kay loved the neighborhood. And on so many occasions, he was famous in our neighborhood because little kids would come home. They had a lemonade stand, and Carl would pull up and pay $100 for a couple of glasses of lemonade. Yep. And, and they bring him home. Mom, look what, you know, this man, he pulled up in this car and, they said, well, what did he look like? And they're describing this huge superstar, kind teddy bear. And, uh, you know, you have that same reputation, John. You are always so generous, so went out of your way. You always had time for everybody. So as we wind down our time together, talk to us about, give us an inside glimpse before I ask you a kind of a final question. Inside glimpse of what happens when you raise the money at the mascot bowl and what happens when we team up with the fire department, take us back to the day when the buses would show and the fire department had their signs and, I mean, had their lights and, and sirens going. Teach us about the that concept and maybe pay tribute to the great Mark Eaton, who I think participated with you in a little bit of a way, didn't he? Because a that, lot was of my, a way, yeah. that was my first experience. Yep. Before I came with you and Andy, it was with, it was with, car, it was with uh, um, big Mark Eaton. And it was the same thing, going to Walmart and doing the thing. Describe what happens there. Wow, Mark Eaton. Yeah, that, there's a name and a man that uh, we all miss. Um, so I remember, you know, going back to what you were just talking about with your mom, is I remember back when we would be shopping, and sometimes, well, it happened more than sometimes, <laughs> we'd always go over. And this goes to show you what kind of person, you know, a Carl Malone and a Mark Eaton and, and, uh, st- and Mark Atkins, you know, Mark. Oh, yeah. How people look out for others is I remember one time we were over by like $5,600 and remember Roxanne Huskow? She was one of my dearest friends. When she passed away, I cried so hard. Oh, love her. And she got on the phone and she came over and it was came alone on the phone and they had said that, don't worry about it. We'll cover it. So that was amazing. And then there were a number of times that we had gone over and, and uh, you remember Brenda, Brenda Hoskins? Oh yeah. Sue Willie. Uh, one of Mark Eaton's great, you know, great friends, but Mark would always hang out and Brenda would walk over and say, this is the situation. And Mark would just pull out a credit card and he'd cover the $2,000 that we were short. Um, so that is a testimony to, to what kind of guys they were, you know, I mean, you know, Mark Atkins, you know, Mark, Eaton, yeah. same thing, you know, just uh, showing up at the event and wanting to help any way they can. Um, but yeah, you know, with, with shopping is, I remember, 
it, it's just so fun because we use high schools because we, we like to have kids get involved. And when they're involved, uh, they get to see kind of like all the planning and stuff come together. They get to get out there. They get to see it come together. And, and actually, we pull it off. And then a couple months later, they're the ones who get to take these kids Christmas shopping. So it's kind of like full circle. And I always like what the kids say afterwards. And I love when you see these high school kids with these younger kids that, you know, don't have every, you know, the iPhones and all this other stuff. And I love seeing that humanity come out of them. I love seeing them, you know, uh, be humbled by uh, these kids. Like a, a story for you is I remember this little girl was uh, over by the candy bar section and she grabbed a candy bar and she looked up at the, the two kids that were with her and she's like, am I done? And they're like, oh, no, 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 you got way more money to spend than that because, you know, we always try and give the kids each $100. And she grabbed another one, and she goes, am I done now, you know? And it's moments like that that you realize that, you know, you know these, these high school kids are getting to see what, what reality is, you know? F- not for everybody, but, you know, for some. And, you know, w- when, when they get done and, and the stuff that you can hear them talking about it's really nice to know that hopefully they, they learn something from this. So it's not as much, well, it is, I mean, but there, there's something as well to this more than just taking kids Christmas shopping. There's also that lesson that gets learned through these, you know, through doing this, you know, for these high school kids. Um, Which will be generational. When they <laughs> get married and have children, they'll pass it on and say, we need to, we need to get involved in a charity. We need to do something for the unders- underserved, yeah. Y- you know what's amazing, though, is... We've, over the last while now, had kids that we've taken shopping come and volunteer. So uh, 20 years later, you know, they're adults and they're coming to give back because of what it did for them. But I remember the other cool thing is when these kids get out in their buses, and I remember we'd have nine buses full of kids and their volunteers that would go with them, and Eldon Farnsworth would load up uh, the Sorensen Center <laughs> with fire trucks, and I'd always ride in the bucket, and I'd freeze, <laughs> but it was one of those things that, you know, Brendan would always be like, oh, John, it's really cold. And I'd be like, nope, I'm going to do it because I, to me it was like it was a tr- it's a tradition, and I'm a big tradition guy, <laughs> and I was like, I'm, it, nothing is going to stop me. And I remember one time this big snowstorm was happening, and uh, Santa Claus, I can't say his name, but I'm just going to call him Santa Claus, but he, he always showed up, and uh, he would ride in the bucket with me. And I remember he looked at me, and he's like, I'm not doing this again because <laughs> we were both freezing. I'm covered. He's covered in snow. And we're just like, I'm almost ready to tap out. And I'm like, no, I can't do it. We got to go. But I remember I'd look from the fire truck because we'd be in the front. And I would look all the way down Redwood. And I bet you we would be, because we're, you know, you're, we're coming off California Avenue there. Mm-hmm. And we take that left on Redwood. I bet you we were like 30th South and you could see the last vehicle turn in the corner because we had nine buses, like eight fire trucks, all these cop cars, a whole bunch of vehicles, you know, in tow. It was all so celebrating amazing. kids who yep. couldn't have a Christmas. It was amazing. Would, wouldn't have the means with their parents to have a Christmas and you provided that for them. It was, it was just, it's just amazing what, when you put a number of people or that many people together, what you can accomplish, you know? So last, last question, John. So uh, how do you want to be remembered? You know, you're in the Mascot Bowl Hall of Fame. and I mean, the Mascot Bowl. You're in the Mascot Hall of Fame. You're in the YMCA Hall of Fame. 
You're in every... I'm going to create my own Hall of Fame. It's just going to be called the absolute Hall of Fame of, of service before self Yeah, just be me. I mean, that's because you, you just call it the absolute. <laughs> how do you want? How do you want to be remembered? Because you're currently remembered. It's so cool to be, to be a prophet in your own country. We always say a prophet... Yeah, prophet's not a prophet. A yeah. man is not a prophet in his own country, but you are. You're so well-respected. But how, how can you take it to the next level, and how can we support you? Wow. Well, thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. No, you know, honestly, it, it being a mascot was great. It was great to have that vehicle, and I know that when, you know, the vehicle being the bear, but when I was done, I really was worried that I wouldn't have that vehicle and I wouldn't be able to do charity work like I did before. And then that was my push is I, I need to know that I can do this on my own and tell you the truth. I, I actually love it more this way because now I actually get to talk to people and get to know people before I would just show up and I'd meet people and I'd, I'd go, but I never really felt, you know, like so connected like I do now with people, um, with children and, the, and their parents, because now I get to talk to them and, and see them. But honestly, you know how I want to be remembered. I just want to know that I put a, you know, a footprint on this planet, Dan, just like you, you know, and I think, and I know you're, you're going to agree with me on this, but you know, to me, being success, su- successful isn't about, you know, having a, and I know you've heard this before, you know, not having a big bank account, but I just want to, you know, hopefully when I pass that I have a full church and then I know that I was successful and I know that what I was doing was, was on the right path. Absolutely. And it's interesting, as John retired as our jazz bear and a new person took over the costume, you realize that it's more than a costume. It's not the same jazz bear. With all due respect to any mascot out there, it is the person inside the suit that makes the character come alive, that makes the, the difference. And there's a difference between a costume and someone who's inside the costume that uses that vehicle, that uses that character to express who he really is. And that's what you've always been able to do. Everybody could see the jazz bear and not just wonder what this amazing human being must be like, but now you get a chance to see the stud muffin hunk of burning love that was inside that suit. Well, I'm just going to hang out with you because there's no way I'm going to feel this good. You're so (laughs) important. This is the best one hour of my life right here. You're so important to our community. You always will be. And there could be 10 new jazz bears in that same suit, and there'll never be another John FC. So thank you. We honor you. We love you. We admire you. And I am a better man, a better human being, a better father, a better husband, having hang, having had a chance to hang out with you. And there will be many more events and many more years to come if I have anything to do with it. Well, God bless you. Dan, I, I can't thank you enough for having me on. And just for everybody out there, you know, just something for you, Dan, is you know how it is. And, and we talked about it just now. You have the people, like, you know, the old players and how everybody was so nice. And they they were a lot – you they allowed you to come close to them. And, and nowadays you have people and they keep you at distance, but for who you are, Dan, and for how everybody respects you and for what you've done in your life. And I feel blessed that you've let me into your life and you've let so many other people into your life. And, and it, it's funny. Cause when you talk about, you know, uh, people with your stature and what you've done, is you don't always hear, you know, like I wouldn't be able to just call you and say, hey, Dan, how you doing? <laughs> and you reply back. I mean, you know what I mean? And so I just love you for that. 
because everything that you say and, and, and you and do is you really mean it and you live it. And uh, I appreciate that. So I'm, I'm always tearing pages out of my book when I watch you because I, I just love how you have allowed me to be part of your life and everybody else to be part of your life and how you really give back to the community. Thanks. So thank you. Thanks. So the message of this Power Players with Dan Clark is just the simple reminder. We become the average of the five people we associate with the most, which means you need to find a mascot <laughs> in your life. But more importantly, all, all kidding aside, if you were a mascot, which you are, people are watching, you must be the same off stage as you are on stage or you have no credibility. You must be the same person in your house as you are outside of your house, the same person on the field or on the court as you are off the court, and vice versa. We have no respect, no credibility, and please download, please share this episode just as a simple reminder that John Absey really is exactly the same in person as he is in that suit, and that's what made you the mascot of the year five times and the mascot forevermore number one in the hearts and souls of every Utah Jazz fan who ever lived who will continue to live as they watch the old videos of your amazing antics, your bravery, your courageousness, and your um, borderline drain damage as you would climb these 95-foot towers and rappel from the ceiling and hug the lonely, the, the lonely fan that needed a little bit of love that day. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and we'll be forever grateful. No, thank you, Dan. I appreciate those kind words, and I appreciate you letting me come on. Hey, actually, I got something for you. Do you ever, do you ever, like when you were working, did you ever have a, a zone moment, like when you played sports and stuff? You know how they always talk about the zone. Oh yeah. Do you ever do? You, do you remember getting into those zones like that? Yeah. So you were in a zone. No, I'm just saying this. I don't even know where I'm going with this. No, I, I thought great. we were done, so I was just going to talk. No, yeah, no. <laughs> okay, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We're now off the air, and we will now start to smoke our medicinal marijuana <laughs> so that we can communicate at a deeper level. No, I was just going to say that. Uh, no, I remember. I'm usually in a zone watching <laughs> Steph Curry shoot. Exactly. Watching Larry Bird shoot, watching John perform as the jazz bear. That's the zone that I tune into. I'm like, how do they do this? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Actually, there's a couple mascots out there that do do that. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because I'm always like, how do you perform? I know. That's dope. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't even imagine. But who thinks of it first? I'm like, what did you hit your head on on Thursday night? <laughs> there you have it. Good night. God bless. And... Oh, we're still recording. We always are, of course. <laughs> come on there. What, come on, baby. Stud Muffin was his last I know, name. Come on, Mr. Stud Muffin. Come on, let's, babe. let's kill okay. this thing. <laughs> we're done. Thanks, man. That's so funny. The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.